turning to Matthew chapter 12. We are continuing our series here through the Gospel of Matthew. This is message number 30 in this series entitled, The Servant, the Spirit, and the Snakes. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 37. And so to begin, I'm going to read verses 15 and 16. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known. Now, chapter 12 gives us a series of interactions leading to the next large teaching section that begins in chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel. And as we read through chapter 12, it's obvious that even though Matthew does um, give us some healing episodes, the emphasis is not on the healing so much. It's, it's not on the miracle or, or the sign so much as it is on the interaction. What it is that the, the people are um, sort of deducing from these signs and things that they have seen along with the words of Jesus. So there's an interaction with the crowd and with the, uh, with the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, especially here in chapter 12. And the reason for that is the theme that Matthew is developing at this point, which is Israel's rejection of the promised Messiah. So you remember back in the last chapter, in chapter 11 and verse 20, how that Jesus was rebuking the cities of Galilee because they had witnessed a, a majority of signs and miracles but they had not repented. Yes, they'd followed him. Large crowds of them had followed him around, but they had not repented, meaning that they also had not believed. And so chapter 12 opens up then with two Sabbath controversies. So the Sabbath day, the weekly Sabbath in particular, was viewed as very heavy in Jewish life, and we've talked about that concept of heavy laws. Um, so it was very heavy in Jewish life, and the, the Old Covenant, when you go back to the Old Covenant and you read about the weekly Sabbath, you realize that the Old Covenant gives a few simple restrictions um, for the weekly Sabbath. But rabbinical tradition had greatly expanded and added to the scope of Sabbath ob observance by the first century, the time uh, of Jesus and the apostles. Now, Matthew shows how that the Pharisees were watching Jesus. In other words, they, they were plotting against him. They, they were trying to find something, something that they could use against him, something, in fact, that um, they could make formal accusation with that could lead to uh, the doing away of Jesus and his ministry in Israel. And, of course, by the end of these exchanges there in, in verse 14, they amplified their efforts to contrive how to have him executed. Well, the Pharisees in, in these Sabbath controversies had accused Jesus' disciples of breaking um, the Sabbath laws, and then they sought to entrap Jesus when they saw a man with a disabled hand by asking Jesus whether or not it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath day. Well, of course, the disciples didn't violate any old covenant law by picking the grain, and Jesus showed that saving life and doing good was always lawful on the Sabbath day. But the primary point came down to the end of those Sabbath controversies when Jesus declared that he, he was the Lord of the Sabbath, 
The Lord of the Sabbath was among them. In other words, Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath um, references his messianic role as lawgiver, prophesied to come, beginning all the way back with Genesis chapter 49 and verse number 10. So now we come to verses 15 to 37. This is a pretty big chunk out of this chapter. But this, this section focuses on the Pharisees' explicit rejection of Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah. And Matthew especially takes pains here to show these events fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. And so as you're reading through this this account, and Matthew has presented this one who is the son of Abraham and the son of David, uh, the Messiah according to Old Testament prophecy, and then you start getting toward the middle of of this gospel, that opposition just just really increases, um, the rejection increases, the hostility toward Jesus, they're they're endeavoring to to kill him, ultimately they arrest him, and and he is crucified. Well, it, it seems like that Jesus being rejected would indicate a failure of the Messiah's mission to gather Israel and to establish the kingdom. And this is what the Old Testament prophets talked about. But Matthew is showing how that it, rather than being a failure, is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now, we'll see some more about the seeming failure to establish the kingdom um, that's coming up a little, little later here in, in Matthew. So Jesus points out the failure of the Pharisees and gives a strong warning concerning judgment. So we'll look at this in three parts. In verses 15 to 21, we have the prophesied servant of Yahweh. In verses 22 to 32, we have the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And in verses 33 to 37, we read of the generation of venomous snakes. So we're going to begin with the first part here, beginning again with verse 15. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. So Matthew points out that Jesus knew that the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews were seriously considering how to arrange for his execution. So uh, he obviously knew that he was facing hostility, he was facing opposition, but he also knew of their secret counsels that they were taking um, against him. There was nothing that surprised him or or caught him off guard. Um, he, He knew what was taking place, and they were doing this because they had rejected him as Messiah. And had their, their hostility toward him had gotten to such a point that, that they just they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him and be done with him. We, we need to get rid of this guy. He's just causing way too much trouble for us here in Israel. Now, it's clear that they weren't on the fence. They weren't undecided about Jesus as a prophet or even as the Son of God. They were fully persuaded that he was neither of those. And they would rather, um, or they rather saw him as an agent of Satan. And that is what comes out later in the passage. So we're told that Jesus withdrew from them. Now there were large crowds of people that continued to follow him. Um, but he really seemed to be doing the opposite of trying to build popularity or attracting Israel to himself. He, he seemed to be doing just the opposite of that. 
And the crowds that followed him were told that he continued to work messianic signs by healing their diseases and such. Verse 16, and charged them that they should not make him known. So this is pertaining to those that he had healed. So along with his withdrawal, he is commanding that they would not make it known. Now, we've encountered this before, and Matthew here actually follows with an explanation of why Jesus was charged, was withdrawing and charging them that they not make his healing signs known. Verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying. So Matthew tells us here very plainly that Jesus did this. He withdrew and he charged the, the crowds, those that he, were, that he was healing, not to make him known. He did this to fulfill what was written specifically by the prophet Isaiah. Now, Matthew proceeds here in the, in the next few verses to quote from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. And he'll quote that from verse 18 down through verse 21. And he quotes this portion of Isaiah as prophecy concerning the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. Now, again, it's particularly his withdrawing, his withdrawing from the Pharisees and from the leaders of Israel, his um, commanding not to make him known, that is explained particularly by Isaiah's prophecy. So even though his general popularity was still growing at this point, he still had large crowds that are following him around, that are gathering around him. Even though his popularity was still growing, his mission as Messiah seemed to be heading toward failure. Let's begin this quotation here with verse 18. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles." So this is the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh to the prophet Isaiah. And he is delivering this word to Israel and to Judah. So that that Yahweh is is the speaker here. The Lord is the speaker here um, through his, his, uh, uh, his prophet Isaiah. And he says, my servant, behold my servant and... Um, the, the servant of Yahweh is actually one of the messianic titles that Isaiah uses. He uses it several times in his prophecy. But this servant is also, you will notice, more than just a servant. And, and the word that's used back there in, in Isaiah's prophecy uh, would refer to that bond slave. Um, but, it, but he's more than just that. He's, it says that he is chosen and he is beloved by Yahweh. And those words, of course, are echoed by the Father after Jesus was baptized when he was anointed with the Spirit in, back in chapter 3 and verse number 17. But if we look at the, the prophecy, he says, in, uh, uh, I will put my Spirit upon him. So there's prophecy in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah, the servant of Yahweh. And again, that's a, uh, you know, uh, synonymous uh, titles or, or equivalent titles. The giving of the Spirit to the servant of Yahweh. Now, I just want to look at a couple of places where Isaiah also, as well as Isaiah 42. So this is Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 to 5. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. 
and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. So Isaiah's prophecy there about, about this root of Jesse, um, this Messiah that was to come, is that he is, is going to be, in essence, filled with the Spirit of the Lord. Uh, Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. So of the Messiah, and here's three different instances, particularly in Isaiah's prophecy, of the Messiah, it was prophesied that he would be filled with the Spirit of God. So in other words, this, this is, was seen as one of the characteristic marks of the Messiah when he comes, is that he will be filled with the Spirit of God. Now, this is important to remember a little later in the passage. Now, we get back to this, to this quotation. So, so Yahweh says, I'll put my Spirit upon him. In other words, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he'll show judgment to the Gentiles. So not only is he the prophesied Messiah for Israel, but he shall also rule the nations. And that's the goyim there, the, the nations. We've talked about numerous times, especially we've been going through the Psalms. When he comes, he, he will rule over Israel, and he will rule over all the nations of the earth in his kingdom. And we read something about that uh, in Isaiah 11, verses 2 to 5, that we read just a few moments ago. And this reflects, again, his, his status, his authority as lawgiver, as king. Verse 19, uh, Matthew continues the quotation. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. Now this is again describing the servant of Yahweh um, who is to come. So, so when we think about what Matthew had just said about Jesus withdrawing and, and charging that, they, that he not be made known, and we think of particularly about this verse that he quotes from Isaiah 42, we see that, he, that his coming is being described here. He, he would not cry out in the streets for hearing. As you read the gospel accounts and all the accounts of the things that Jesus said and did, we don't find Jesus pulling up on a street corner with a megaphone or a microphone or some large placard and hollering out and trying to gather a crowd around him to hear what he had to say. Actually, when you, when you look at, at the, the methods of Jesus, he would go to the synagogues on the Sabbath day, and there he would oftentimes explain those Old Testament scriptures to um, those that had gathered there on, on the Sabbath days. But for the most part, sometimes he would draw his disciples away and he would intentionally um, teach them concerning something. But for the most part, when Jesus spoke publicly, it was because a crowd had followed him. He was, people had gathered around him. Or someone had approached him and asked him a question. In other words, we don't, we don't find him um, going out and, and, and shouting and trying to get up a crowd and trying to draw people to himself, but rather he was more withdrawn than that. So, so he didn't seek to raise up a following 
to challenge the leaders of Israel. So Jesus didn't go about Israel trying to gather up this crowd to pit them against the leaders of Israel and, and to bring out some sort of, some sort of battle. No, the, the crowds came to him. They followed him. They were healed by him. They talked with him, and, and he taught them. Now, this is one of those places, again, that seems hard to reconcile because Jesus seemed to do the opposite of trying to succeed. If, if, if his ministry and his mission is to come to Israel and, and to gather Israel. And, and that was prophesied of the Messiah. He would gather Israel. In fact, he would gather Israel and Judah. He's going to gather all of the tribes um, to um, the land of Israel, the land that's been, that's been promised to them. They're, they're going to be um, established there. He's going to establish the kingdom. They'll be established as a nation of, of people. And so it seems like that, that this is hard to reconcile with that mission, if, if success in that mission was indeed Jesus' aim. Let's go on reading, though, verse 20. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, until he send forth judgment unto victory. So despite the opposition that Jesus received and the rejection that he experienced from Israel, he would not destroy them completely. The bruised reed and the smoldering wick here they're actually pictures of the weakness of Israel under judgment in exile. In other words, if you think about and think about some of the descriptions of the house of David, and even Isaiah brings this out that the house of David is 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 like that stump that 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 tree has been cut off, and there's that stump there, and that stump has been burned, and it's charred, and it's and it's and it's dry, and that's what the house of David is like. There's it's seemingly lifeless, no way that it can produce an heir, and yet. Isaiah says that there's going to be a shoot that's going to come from that stump. There's, there's going to be life. There's going to be one that's, that's going to grow from that stump. Well, Israel is also pictured in many ways of, of being so weak, like, like this bruised reed, like this smoldering wick. Just a few examples. Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 to 4. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. These are words to Israel and Judah through the, through the prophet. Isaiah 40 and verse 11. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Uh, later in that chapter, verses 29 to 31, he giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. So when we look at the pictures of Israel under judgment, the pictures communicate to us, another, another one that's used, that Isaiah uh, uses quite a bit, is that um, of an old woman that um, is, has, is bereft, she's, a, she's a, a widowed woman, and she has no children, she has no family, she has, she has no descendants, she's, she's destitute and in poverty, and she has no one to help her and, and, and no one to care for her, uh, and, and seemingly she's just going to die, and, and then that's going to be done. And that's another picture that is used um, to describe Israel in this judgment. They've, been, they've become scattered, they've become very weak, but Jesus, uh, the prophecy here that Matthew says Jesus is fulfilling is he's not going to break off that 
bruised reed, and he's not going to quench that smoldering wick. The Messiah was prophesied to gather Israel and Judah, not to destroy them. Isaiah chapter 11 that we read from earlier in verses 12 and 13. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. In other words, the the northern and southern kingdoms will be gathered and united under the Messiah, this, this root from David. Isaiah 40 and verse 11, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom, shall gently lead those that are with young. Isaiah 43, 5, fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. So again, the Messiah was prophesied not to destroy it, not to destroy Israel, but to gather them. And Isaiah prophesied how that he would not fail. Israel would not be destroyed, and the Messiah would triumph and bring the kingdom just as promised. As he says there, till he send forth judgment unto victory. Verse 21, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. So this kingdom reign is confirmed by the subjection of the nations unto him. And you can Read that, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. Again in chapter 11, verses 9 to 12. Isaiah 42, verses um, 10 to 12. So Matthew turns here toward the rejection of Jesus that leads to his crucifixion and is reminding here that all of this is according to Old Testament prophecy and that even though it may seem that Jesus is failing in the mission if he is indeed the Messiah, he will not fail to gather Israel and reign over the nations. And that's quite astounding when you think about it as what happens from here on out. As that opposition and hostility becomes more open, it it grows. Eventually the crowds are going to depart and are going to flee away from him and he's going to end up crucified outside of Jerusalem on a cross among common criminals. That seems to be the very opposite. But yet Matthew is assuring at this point before he's making this hard turn into this rejection story, this is all according to to the Old Testament prophecy. All of this is being done that Scripture might be fulfilled. And the assurance that we have is that it will all be fulfilled. Not just the suffering and rejection part, but also the victory, also the gathering of Israel, also the establishment of the kingdom. Now we proceed to the next part, beginning in verse 22, and where we read about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. Now if you think about, as you're reading through Matthew's gospel to this point, you've already encountered a number of places where Jesus is said to have cast out demons. 
So um, back in chapter 8 and verse 16, where you have sort of one of those summary statements that he just he cast out many uh, of devils that were of people that were possessed with them. Uh, in chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, where he casts out the legion um, of, of devils. Um, there in, in chapter 9, verses 33 and 34, where you have another uh, mute man that he casts out devils out of. In chapter 10, verses 1 and 8, we read of how he gave authority to his apostles to cast out devils as they went throughout the cities of Israel, preaching that, that, that they were to repent because the kingdom was at hand and the Messiah had come. And so, of course, we believe they, they did that. So there have been many exorcisms to this point, and we, we have no idea. The, the number would have to be uh, seemingly quite large number of exorcisms that have taken place to this point and so this man come is brought to Jesus he's blind he's mute he can't speak and he is possessed by a demon and Jesus cast out the demon just as his manner was by the authority of his command and the man was healed completely but once again you'll notice that really the emphasis here is not so much on on the miracle that has taken place but on what results from that what what conclusions did people come to when they solved such a messianic sign well verse 23 says and all the people were amazed and said is not this the son of david so this loud or, or large crowd rather that was gathered around jesus they were astonished in, in other words they're, they're sort of so they're, they're sort of just dumbstruck um, to, to explain what they have seen, what has taken place. And they ask this question about Jesus, whether or not he is the son of David. Now, um, this son of David, obviously, we've, we've seen that before. They referred, it's a messianic title from the Old Testament, um, um, relaying the fact that he was the promised Messiah, the promised son of David, uh, to reign from David's throne in Jerusalem over the kingdom. So, but I understand that the way that this is put sort of grammatically, that they're expressing some skepticism here. They're looking out on, at, at what Jesus has done. They're astonished by this miracle. And they're sort of searching for a, a way to explain it. And they, they don't seem to be able to, to come upon a, a real good explanation. So they're sort of asking, well, I mean, is this the son of David? And remember, we've, we've already read how that Jesus has been upbraiding these cities because they've not believed in him. Yes, these crowds are following him around, but they haven't repented. They haven't believed in him as Messiah, as son of God. And so they're, they're a little bit, the crowd's a little bit on the fence still about, even though they've witnessed all these great many miracles, and, and here they see another one that just sort of leaves them awestruck, and, and they can't really explain it. And so they're they're sort of, skeptically asking maybe maybe this is the the son of it could it be i mean is it is it him um and then we see in verse 24 but when the pharisees heard it they said this fellow doth not cast out devils but by, by beelzebub the prince of the devils so the pharisees they heard the words of the crowd they they knew the thinking sort of the people were expressing this skeptical sort of idea. And they responded much like they did back in chapter 9, verses 33 and 34, when Jesus healed that deaf and mute man there. 
In other words, they did not deny the power that Jesus had. And, and you can just imagine, I, I don't know, that, you know how their uh, council meetings went, but you could just sort of imagine them getting together and, and maybe even entertaining, is there some way to explain these things away? Um, and, and there was just too much, just too many signs, too many people had witnessed, which is one of the, one of the um, results, I guess, that from this large crowds following Jesus around is that you had just hosts of people that had witnessed these great signs, and, and they're awestruck at them. And so the Pharisees, it's a no-go if they're, if they're going to try to deny that Jesus had done these things. That, that's, that's just an impossible road to go. They're not going to be able to pull that off. So they weren't denying that Jesus had the power. It was just undeniable. But rather, they're asserting that Satan was the source of his power. And this term, Beelzebub, was, it means, I think it literally means something like Lord of Flies or something like that. Um, it, it was a designation that was, that was used for Satan, and, and it was um, it's, it's sort of a, uh, was used somewhat uh, mockingly. Prince of demons that he's referred to here, or prince of, of devils. And so they are ascribing his power. And you can read in, in some, of the, um, some of the older Jewish writings that, that, that it seems like there, there was some explanation uh, of this Jesus. You know, he had been to Egypt and that he was some sort of a, some sort of a sorcerer, that he was, he's practicing some sort of dark art that he learned how to do in, in Egypt. And that was one of the explanations um, of Jesus and the power that he had, which also confirms that he did have this great power, and it required some sort of explanation. So the Pharisees, ah, they, they put it off. No, Satan is the source of his power. Now, Matthew sets this immediately after he just gave this long quotation from the prophecy of Isaiah concerning the, the coming Messiah and how that Jesus fulfilled it. And remember that he, he refers to this part of Isaiah's prophecy where it was prophesied that the Messiah would be filled with the Spirit of God. Now, these Pharisees are very well aware of Isaiah's prophecy. They're very well aware that the Messiah is to be filled with the Spirit when he comes. So, by saying that Satan was the power of Jesus' miracles, they are specifically rejecting Jesus as Messiah. Oh, he's filled with a spirit, but it's not God's spirit. It's the spirit of Satan that he is filled with. Verse 25, And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. So Jesus proceeds to expose the error of their thoughts. He illustrates uh, with these organizations, large to small, kingdom, city, to house, or family. And if these have infighting, if these have internal strife and internal divisions and internal 
oppositions and, and wrangling and, and wrestlings for control, they cannot succeed or continue. Verse 26, and if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? So Jesus is actually putting some, he's putting three questions ultimately to the Pharisees here, um, giving, you know, given their estimation. Um, does, does that really make sense as an explanation? So the point that Jesus made was how that he was there uh, in their midst and he was demonstrating power superior to that of the kingdom of Satan. If you think about it again, there's been many, exorcisms to this point, along with other healings and, and, and such that Jesus has worked. Jesus was going about liberating people from the control of Satan and the demons. And that would be a self-contradicting act of Satan's power. In other words, how could Satan succeed by dividing and splitting his kingdom up? In effect, making it smaller than what it was before. So this is one of the questions that Jesus is putting to them. Verse 27, and if, if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. So Jesus is referring here to the exorcisms that some performed, or at least attempted to perform, and how the, the Pharisees could clearly see that if any exorcism took place, it must truly be the power of God that was opposing the power of Satan. And if you'll recall, in the book of Acts, we read about those sons of Sceva, seven of them, I believe, that there was. And this Sceva was one of the chief priests, and he had these sons that were exorcists. They were traveling around, you know, casting out, or at least attempting to cast out devils. And, of course, it didn't turn out too well there. My point is, the Pharisees looked at that and, and they perceived that it would have to be the power of God that would cast out Satan or demons out of a person that they had possessed. And so Jesus says, if, if you can come to that conclusion pertaining to your sons, and, and probably not literally their sons, but just those of, of Israel um, who, who would attempt to do the same, he said, well, then how do you think that I do it? You know, and, and in other words, they, they shall be your judges. Verse 28, but if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. So the alternative was that Jesus casting out demons was truly by the Spirit of God. And that meant that the kingdom had come near to them just as John had preached, just as Jesus was preaching, and just as his apostles had preached, and just as his signs had confirmed, including those of casting out demons. Verse 29, Or else, how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? So Jesus gives yet another illustration as, as a question that he puts to them. So if a strong man guards his house, it's, it's well-defensed, it's, it's well-guarded, it's well-protected, Jesus says there must be a stronger one to bind him in order to plunder his house. Now, of course, Jesus also here looks forward to 
the necessity of Satan being bound in order for the kingdom to come, which we read about in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. Verse 30, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. So the, the, the kingdoms are, are completely opposed to one another. And the action of, of, of one is against the other, Jesus explains. And he's here re- really rebuking the Pharisees and those that have rejected Jesus. See, his messianic work is to gather Israel. But the Pharisees and those following them would be scattered. In other words, they're, act, they're accomplishing the opposite of what the Messiah's mission truly was. And so if you remember back in chapter 11 and verse 12, the Pharisees, those leaders of, of Israel in particular, were referred to as, as those violent ones who, who snatched that kingdom away through violence. Jesus explaining that the Pharisees were those that shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, preventing them from entering. That comes later in chapter 23 and verse 13. And of course, this scattering would occur again in judgment in 70 A.D. Now we get to verse 31. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. So Jesus here pronounces that their particular sin would not be forgiven. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is attributing the work of the Spirit to Satan. To to look upon the Son of God in the flesh and to declare He is not filled with the Spirit of God, but rather with the Spirit of Satan. So it is, in essence, to call the Holy Spirit Satan. It's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, it will not be forgiven. He explains in verse 32, Whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. The word for world there is the the word for age. It would not be forgiven in that age, nor would it be forgiven in the age to come. Now, the age to come refers to the Messianic kingdom. What that tells us is is that this sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit is uniquely possible only when Jesus is on earth. In other words, it was something that they committed at that that time and something that it would seem to be possible to be committed again in the Messianic kingdom. And in fact, when you read in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, you do read about those that oppose um, Jesus. And so there are sinners that will be um, judged of of the nations. Now let's look at this last part. Uh, This is verses 33 to 37, where Jesus denounces this generation of venomous snakes. Verse 33, Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. So Jesus summarizes his assessment of the Pharisees and that generation of Israel who rejected him. So he refers again to this principle of a good tree and good fruit, um, as well as a bad tree and bad fruit. In other words, what kind of tree that it is is shown by the fruit that it produces. Um, And Jesus is applying this to his rejectors. Verse 34, O generation of vipers, 
How can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And again, this is in the context of their blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, saying that Jesus worked by the power of Satan. Well, that generation of of Israel is likened to a generation of venomous snakes. This is what John called them as well, back in chapter 3 and verse number 7. And Jesus will call them that again in Matthew chapter 23 and verse number 3. But the words of Jesus that he's saying to the Pharisees actually echo, again, from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 6. For the vile person will speak villainy, and his heart will work iniquity, to practice hypocrisy and to utter error against the Lord, to make empty the soul of the hungry, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Now, that, that's just a verse pulled out there, but the context surrounding that passage is actually a rebuke to those of Israel in Isaiah's day. They, they had become weary of trusting in promises that seemed to them to never be fulfilled. Where is this, where is this, this coming one, and where, where, are, where are these promises? And so because they had grown weary of waiting on the promises to be fulfilled, Rather than trusting in the Lord and rather than trusting in him to send his um, anointed son, they looked to Egypt. And that's the context there specifically. Sometimes they they looked to Assyria, sometimes they looked to other nations. But But in this case, they had looked to Egypt to deliver them, to form an alliance with them, and for the the military power and might of Egypt to be able to join together and deliver them from the threats against them. So it was a rebuke. Remember, they they spoke from their heart. The vile was speaking from their heart, uttering error against the Lord. And again, this is what Jesus says that this generation of venomous snakes was doing, speaking out of their evil hearts. And then he explains, verse 35 A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. So he's he's explaining their blasphemy as being that that has come forth from their heart, revealing who they were. In, In other words, John the Baptist had come to prepare people for the Messiah, the people of Israel, and in particular, by their repentance. And so they had shown, they had manifested that they were not prepared for the Messiah. Why? Because their hearts were evil. They had not repented and they rejected him. They had rather believe that all of the power that had been witnessed and all of the word that had been preached was rather the working of Satan than that it was of the Spirit of God. Verse 36, but I say unto you, this is Jesus speaking, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Jesus again pronouncing as lawgiver, I say unto you. The final judgment, Jesus says, is when a time when even idly spoken words will have to be accounted for. Things seemingly insignificant, things seemingly trivial and so small will have to be accounted for. 
Continuing in verse 37, For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. And this connects right back to what he was saying previously, that you, that you speak out of the heart. And, and that, can be, that could be words of, of hypocrisy. If your heart is hypocritical, you're going to speak words of hypocrisy. And it may fool people. And it may, they may make people think of you as something other than what you truly are. But the point that Jesus is making is that in, in that final judgment, the truth is what will be judged. The truth of the matter. As, as you speak, by your words you'll be justified. By your words you'll be condemned. In other words, it's again, it's the, the fruit in the tree. You, you will be shown and exposed to be what you truly are. And there'll be no denial of it. So once again, we see here how the Pharisees and the, the leaders of Israel, they've, they've not denied the reality of the power of Jesus. Uh, even though the common people were skeptical in how to account for it, but again, they just demonstrated that they had not repented by the words that they spoke against the Holy Spirit. And of course, Matthew in this passage as well points out that Jesus is the hope of all nations, not, not only that of Israel, which means that our words, which express the real nature of our hearts, will be judged. So we must receive Jesus for who he, he is, truly who has revealed himself to be, not substituting some Messiah of our own making.